I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Hey, Jason. Hey, Ksenia. How are you doing? Good. Happy to be back again this week. Absolutely. Well, I'm really enjoying this season. We've spoken to quite a few very interesting people so yeah, far. Totally. And well, as you know, I really liked our episode three with Darian last week. I just I thought uh, what he kind of talked to us about was absolutely fascinating, and it's really nice to get perspective um, on LGBTQI community that we don't really talk much about yet in disaster studies. So I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, it was amazing. So we're up to week four and we're doing something a bit different today, which is a bit of a characteristic of this season. We wanted to get away from talking to academics all the time, right? So totally, yeah. Yeah. So we're we're um inviting a lot of different voices onto the podcast. And this week we are talking to an elected official. So we have Heidi Harmon on the show with us. She's the mayor of a city in California called San Luis Obispo. And um, she's been a longtime um, grassroots activist. She made the decision to run for mayor um, and she was successful and she was reelected as well. So she's serving a second term as mayor. And so it's going to be really fascinating to talk to Heidi about her experiences running for office, getting people involved in the political process. Um, and some of the things that she has managed to achieve in San Luis Obispo. Totally. And I mean, I really enjoyed meeting Heidi in person in summer 2019 when we had our conference. So Heidi, thanks so much for joining us from California. Um, we're, My pleasure. Yeah, we're really um, excited to talk to you today. And as, as you know, we are focusing on stories this season our season two of Disasters Deconstructed, and um, especially looking at different ways that stories motivate people and um, enable us to kind of understand more deeply how people connect. And of course, for Ksenia and I, that is in relation to disasters. And um, we're, we're, we're really interested to talk to you, um, especially because your work intersects with the political realm. Um, as a serving official. So um, thanks again for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, so Heidi, of course, um, we all know that stories inspire people. And um, I, I really enjoyed getting to know you over the past few years and listening to um, your story. And um, I would like to ask you, first of all, if you could tell us a bit more about your pathway to becoming the mayor of San Luis Obispo. And um, maybe reflect a bit on what inspired you uh, to to get involved in politics and how you use your own story to inspire other people. Sure. So I didn't have a lot of political orientation when I was younger. I had my kids on the early side and I was kind of going along, raising them. I was homeschooling them and pretty focused on my family when climate change or then most people were calling it global warming came into my consciousness. And that's probably about 14 or 15 years ago now. Hmm. And 
over those first few years, I didn't necessarily engage very much. But once I finally understood how urgent this issue is and how my kids' lives were going to be impacted and potentially shortened, I decided to do everything I can to be a part of the solutions to what I see as the defining issue of our time. Mm. And that led me mostly to activism for probably a dozen years or so. And that eventually led me to run for office. And so I ran for state assembly in 2014 um, in a race that I knew I couldn't win, but I also felt was the best opportunity to change the narrative on climate crisis. And then I ran for mayor in 16 and was able to win um, in that race by 46 votes. It's so awesome, your your journey. And um, I mean, was there anything that, that really motivated you to, to um, run or made you believe that you could really win that race? Or did, I mean, did you think you were going to win when you were in it? I ran against a 20 year incumbent, um, in my same party. And so, no, I did not think I was going to necessarily win at all. I felt like I had a chance. I had grown a big progressive movement here where I live. And so I knew that I had a, a lot of support in the community and I felt that people were ready for something new. Yeah. Um, but I didn't at all think it was a guarantee. And I was, you know, and I, as I still am, I'm growing more and more concerned about the lack of urgency, even for those people in leadership that understand what climate change is and accept that it's happening and know that it's a challenge. Still, there's there's really a lack of courage and bold leadership. And so I felt like, what do I have to lose running? And I think what do I have to lose is a great sort of framing, especially in the context of Mm. the ever sort of slim window that we have to take action on this issue. What's the impact of someone like you being able to get into that office of mayor of a city? What kind of things are you able to push forward and achieve? Well, we've actually, I've been able to have a huge impact. I'm I'm so proud to say, um, We have created a climate action is one of our major city goals for the first time in our city's history. So that means we're putting a lot of resources, staff time and money behind that goal um, or behind that um, major city goal. And as a part of that, we have committed to being carbon neutral by 2035, which is the most ambitious carbon neutrality goal of any city in the United States. We have, I think, the most um, robust EV charging station plan in the state of California. You know, for a pretty small, mid-sized town, we have a kind of a global leadership position on this issue. So I'm grateful that I've been able to go from activist to elected and have a meaningful impact on actual, you know, policy change. This whole narrative about climate change and the way you talk about climate change is really um, motivational, really, really inspirational. But at the same time, there is a lot of narrative about climate change, which is quite divisive, right? And quite kind of politically loaded, not necessarily um, in a good way. So what are the some what are the dominant narratives that, um, in your opinion, the most salient now when it comes to politics and power and, you know, who controls these narratives, who introduces them? You know, um, unfortunately, as you're mentioning, this issue has been politicized when it it really ultimately isn't political at all. 
it's obviously rooted in science and just, you know, the reality of the of physics. Um, and then the, the solutions are more in the political context, you know, how we're going to solve the problem. I wish we could switch the conversation more quickly from arguing about whether or not this is happening to having really, you know, healthy, robust discussions about how we're going to solve it. Um, but so far, we haven't been able to be as successful as we need to be on, on shifting that. Um, but I think it's key that we, um, you know, move forward anyway. And, and my feeling is, I don't know who said it, um, but it's kind of a famous quote, you know, like those who say it can't be done should get out of the way of those that are doing it. And so that's a part of my leadership style, too. I feel like, OK, great. If you want to, you know, be still in denial, um, I'm moving forward and I'm leading the city to create these this ambitious goal. And we're going to have all of these other economic benefits and social benefits. And I think that that is going to hopefully attract people into this issue, maybe even more from an economic benefit standpoint than talking about specifically climate crisis. Right. But also, I guess the way we talk about climate crisis, somehow we, you know, we still, for example, use the word believe, right? Some people believe in uh -huh. climate change and others don't, right? And I find uh -huh. it quite um, irritating, like climate change isn't a belief system, right? It's just right. factual. So who benefits from this kind of narratives? Why do we still have them? Well, I think um, a lot of people benefit. I mean, there's obvious benefactors like the fossil fuel industry, but I think also, you know, anyone engaging in capitalism itself benefits from holding on to that status quo idea that having an extractive economy is something that can continue on into eternity. Um, and I think even on a more human level, um, there's, there's, I guess, some minimal benefit to protect yourself from the reality of this, if this is a credibly challenging situation, too. That's more of a short-term benefit. Obviously, that harms you in the long term. So I think there's a lot of benefits that people receive from continuing to deny this issue. And one of the things I feel called to do is to help people understand that there are significant um, negative impacts to being in denial. And there's also significant benefits to moving into a place of acceptance and reality and starting from that place um, in terms of not only policy and carbon reduction and all of that, but also meaning making um, and connecting to others and, um, you know, showing up for yourself and for your community and maybe in a new way. I think it's really interesting that we tend to construct barriers between um, us and others on a lot of issues and this is this is kind of one of those issues where a proportion of people will switch off immediately depending on how you frame what you're about to say with regards to climate change right and so what ways have you found to be effective to communicate across barriers in society you know say conservatives and liberals so how how do you and your community reach people and build trust with people who are maybe not like you and who don't think the same way? How do you, um, mm -hmm. how do you tiptoe around some of these very sensitive issues where language can immediately turn somebody, um, you know, turn somebody off to what you're saying so they can't even hear you? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think one of the things is that economic um, 
argument, which is a solid one, especially at this point. I think 10 or 15 years ago, that was a harder one to make um, on both sides, both the economic um, impact that climate crisis is going to have in a negative way, but also the economic opportunity that's created by transitioning to um, a green, more regenerative economy and energy system. Um, and I think there's a lot of um, opportunity embedded in that transition. And so I think that can be helpful for people. Um, for example, starting January 1st, we will be switching from an investor-owned utility model to a community choice energy model. Mm -hmm. And that model we see um, as being um, slightly less for the ratepayer. So there's economic benefit right away in that sense, but also the profits that normally were created and then shared with the shareholders of the investor-owned utility now will be a pool of money that the community can use for other for reinvesting and investing in other sustainability projects. So mm. I think that that economic benefit can be a really powerful one. Um, I think sometimes people uh, put a lot of weight into, well, if people don't accept the reality of climate crisis, you know, tell them people love money and, and they'll love this argument about the economic benefits. And I think that that can do a little bit of a shift. But we also know when you look at the studies around climate communication, that that's not enough to create culture shift. And ultimately, it's culture shift that we're looking for. I'm I'm just interested in this kind of shift, you know, to climate emergency and the you've mentioned meaning and how we create meaning before. So you know, ten years ago, um, we were kind of told not to talk about climate change in a scary way. Um, you uh -huh. know, in the UK particularly, we even had like social campaign on TV that was banned because it was too scary. Whereas now we uh -huh. the, the, the narrative has shifted. I know, right? It, it, it is scary, but somehow um, we shouldn't have scared people. <laughs> whereas, whereas now we talk about climate emergency, we talk about climate breakdown. So we shifted the meaning and we shifted the narrative to something that, you know, is scary and should be scary and we should all be scared and kind of really worried. So how, how do you see this? Do you think it's a kind of political action or is it something that people just came came to eventually? Well, what I've learned about communication and climate communication in particular um, is that the sweet spot is to not necessarily create what you would describe more as fear, but to create concern mm -hmm. and balance that concern with actionable, solution-oriented, slightly more hopeful um, offerings. And if you can create that sweet spot, you don't want to make it seem like everything's okay. So you definitely mm. need to offer to, you know, ground the conversation in the reality that we are potentially living in the penultimate moment of human existence. So, mm. you know, like that's real. Um, and here's all these other um, opportunities that you have as the listener to take action. And ever more so, too, um, you know, it's clear that it's clear that the outcome is unclear. Right. So right. we know that we're locked, we're locked into a lot of um, suffering already. Mm. Like that's mm. unavoidable and people are already suffering. We know and you know that better than most. And so that's real. And what's also real is that we don't know at this point 
if we do everything in our power, if we're going to have a meaningful outcome of survival. So that's in the, you know, zone of truth also. And so what I've been talking about more and more also is that how can we do the work and show up for each other and create meaningful lives based on love and connection regardless of the outcome that we get. And I think that, you know, not everyone's willing or ready to hear that conversation, but I think it's a conversation that I'm having more and that people that I'm in, you know, relationship with um, are having more and more. So I think it's the sweet spot between concern and actionable solution oriented offerings as well. Yeah, I really love that, Heidi. I can't remember in uh, when exactly, but I remember going down to Orlando with the family to the science museum couple of months ago and they had like a they had a film in in the theater there and it was just looking it was a film about nature but I remember like watching it it was just so um emotive and I like sitting in the theater was having like serious grief about like <laughs> about where the world is going sitting there with my kids having my moment of grief you know and um yeah <laughs> so that's it's it's really real and um i think i think it's something that i talk through with my students as well like we we still need to commit to doing all these things and finding a better way to live with each other and with the planet even if we're unsuccessful and i think we we can get so wrapped up in um and hopeless if we focus only on on the outcome rather than the process. Um, uh -huh. And so I, yeah, I, I really, um, I really feel for what you were saying there. Another thing I was thinking about um, just previously was about the focus on climate change um, as like the one thing we need to solve and how it can uh -huh. sometimes be used by certain actors. And I feel, um, this will become more of an issue as well as, as for instance, fossil fuel companies start to come on board and transform themselves to provide a solution for the problem that they created. Right. So mm -hmm. I feel like climate change for me is also a symptom of uh, overall problems within our systems. Uh, and and mm -hmm. so focusing on a technical solution is also very agenda laden in our work, which is looking at root causes of disasters. We're looking at kind of these systems of oppression that cause people to be um, marginalized and taken advantage of and risk is created in society. And so I feel like we still, when we're talking about climate change, need to find a way to direct people back into these systemic ways that they can understand the problem rather mm. than hoping for the hoping for the technical solution that's going to fix everything because even if we fix that even if we fix climate change using technical solutions we wouldn't actually address a lot of those systemic problems what i'm hearing you say is what i think a lot about is that it's bringing up all of these issues that have been maybe below levels of awareness, you know, um, the, just the general separation that we experience. And I think ultimately climate crisis is a symptom of that illusion of separation, you know, that yeah. we are separate from ourselves, we're separate from each other and we're separate from nature. Um, and none of that's really true. And I think 
in our hearts or guts, we know that, but we experience that separation. And, and again, capitalism has benefited and uh, amplified that separation. Um, and so I think that climate crisis is bringing up a huge human um, it's a spiritual crisis basically, yeah. or, and it's, mm-hmm. it's a structure for that and a spiritual awareness of, of the reality that we're all connected on some level. You know, I think you, you've put it so nicely, you know, that it's crisis of the, the connection on kind of spiritual level, because mm-hmm. we see more and more that climate change is actually has been kind of a, been used as a, as a tool of power. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we, we know that in many now security defense policies, for instance, in many countries, climate change is prominent as a security issue. So, you know, instead of dealing with it altogether as a global issue, we're kind of nationalizing it and trying to solve it as a defense problem, you know, or use it as a defense mm-hmm. problem. Um, therefore, mm-hmm. creating, you know, enemies and foes, you know, because this mm-hmm. is what defense does. You know, it's us versus them. them. Um, and yeah, I just find it quite disturbing to think about climate change in that way. Mm. Um, but kind of moving, I guess, on to what's happening in California, and we've, we've been all um, seen on the news, uh, the you know, stories of wildfires, which is, you know, kind of appearing year upon year now. So how are wildfires connected to climate change? How is this kind of whole narrative framed? Uh, what, what do you see? Well, you always hear people say no particular single incident can be directly linked to climate crisis. And mm. we know that this is the exact kind of things that climate crisis was, or scientists were predicting. And so what I say to especially delay people that don't aren't interested in the science part, and I'm not, not a scientist myself, is, you know, in some ways, climate change is sort of like alcohol in that, you know, like on Thanksgiving, your Uncle Joe is has always been kind of hard to deal with, but now he's had three or four glasses of wine and now he's <laughs> really, really awful and abusive. <laughs> and so it takes whatever natural system is already there and amplifies it to an extreme form, you know, which is why we also see, I think we're seeing across the United States today, record cold temperatures. I think in like 70% of the United States is experiencing that today. And, mm-hmm. you know, that those kind of narratives are challenging because climate deniers like to manipulate those to say, well, if it's global warming, why is it so cold? Um, but what we know mm-hmm. is that it's going to make everything go, go to its extreme um, edge point. And that's what we're seeing in California. We know that we're going to be experiencing drought as the new normal and that wildfires are going to be a major part of that. But it's also, as you know, it's not just climate crisis. It's urban planning and that wild, you know, urban wild on the interface and all those human decisions that have been a part of putting homes um, in dangerous relationship with the natural world and those types of things as well that are causing these fires to be so detrimental to communities. Yeah, and of course in Australia at the moment as well, they're they're really suffering. Mm. And even where where I was living, um, and up until the start of the year, they were I'd never seen a a catastrophic 
warning for the location I was living until this week. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if if you, I don't know if you guys have have been looking at the uh, maps coming out of Australia or any of the images, but it's just pretty shocking. And they they're also um, in the position where they have a prime minister and a government that is firmly in in the pocket of fossil fuels and um, yeah. you know cl climate climate deniers so well there's probably five people in the united states of america that even pay attention to any other country on this earth so i don't know <laughs> if, they, if they people generally you know you never hear people in america saying oh my god did you hear about what's going on in australia <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so oh. you know um, so I don't know if people have that context, but obviously we have um, the climate denier in chief ourselves. So it's a really terrible combination of events that we're faced with. What I've read about Australia in the last few days is, you know, they're obviously the thoughts and prayers as the, the dominant offering from the government. And also they're trying to blame environmentalists for the problems that they're having with fires. Yes, we hear that here, too. And that, that's the sort of narrative that gets out into the public. And then you, you're trying to navigate that when you go to speak with people, right? Because they've, they've just read that somewhere and they throw that at you. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> it could be overwhelming. Yeah, so in your position, you must deal with, with people from all sorts of different um, backgrounds and that have different beliefs and ideas about the world. So, mm -hmm. you know, how do you, how do you navigate that and maintain kind of composure and build trust with people who aren't like you and so on? You know, that's a, that's a good question. And I don't always maintain composure either mm. you know i was recently uh, maybe last month at a meeting um of more conservative it was literally all men it was called the men's potluck <laughs> and they had invited me to come <laughs> right. and speak i know i i probably should never have attended in the first place but you know there were all types types of political perspectives there but primarily conservative libertarian yeah. attitude and um i left there in tears you know, and mm -hmm. there's some people that I, you know, like generally speaking, you know, even though we don't share the same philosophy politically, but I just felt like it was, it, I felt like it, it was surreal to just be in a room of people, especially in California, um, that are just 100% denying that it's real. Mm -hmm. And then even if, you know, if they know it's happening, it's not human made from their perspective and all of those kinds of things. So I definitely don't always maintain my composure, um, but I try to, again, I just try and um, be awesome. I don't know how else to yeah. say it. Like I just try and keep being and the, the kind of person and creating the kind of city that attracts people into it and mm -hmm. sort of the, um, I don't really mean this to be revengeful, but you know success is the best revenge kind of attitude. Like, you know, we're just going to be awesome. We're going to keep moving forward. And when you're ready to accept reality, we'll be over here mm. moving forward and you, and we'll welcome you with open arms. Um, cause you can't really, 
uh, demand someone believe in or accept reality, especially at this moment in time when, you know, the the facts and reality itself seem to be under attack as a general concept. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a challenging time to uh, encourage people to accept reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I think showing your emotion is not a not a sign of weakness at all. And um, I, yeah, I think you're awesome for going to that venue and showing up. <laughs> well, you know, I remember when I was at your conference, I had said that vulnerability is a strength. And yeah. I remember that mm-hmm. you reacted strongly. Um, like that was something in your world yeah. you had never really considered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that I'm really trying to embrace more and more. Um, and I think that that's, that's where the connection can come from if it's authentic, mm. if you are authentically vulnerable with people. And, and climate crisis is going to create a whole world of people that are vulnerable on, in one way or another. Mm. I mean, we also know that we're expecting huge, um, you know, uh, social strife and climate migration and all of those things, which you know, is going to be really challenging, I think, for people to be able to accept and not militarize around. So we definitely have our challenges cut out for us. And that's why I'm focusing more and more on the personal, interpersonal, human connection aspect, because I think regardless of where this is headed, we're going to need to really skill up around that. Well, Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really fascinating and I always love sitting down to to talk with you. It's always great. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. And thank you to our guests for tuning in again. We will see you next week. In the meantime, check us out on Twitter at DisastersDecon and on Instagram at DisastersDecon. This is Mayor Heidi Harmon, and you're listening to Disasters Deconstructed with Jason and Ksenia.